grace. And I pray for an application of grace all across the room this morning. We so desperately need your touch. Now, would you open your word, convict our hearts, lead us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Mick Murray. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm the equipping pastor here. And as the equipping pastor, I help to oversee some of our additional uh, offerings, courses, classes, and so on. And one of those I want to make brief mention of before we dive into the text. Uh, you probably received a handout when you walked in about our prophetic conference coming up on November 2nd through 4th, which is just about a week and a half away. And I uh, want to draw your attention to this because we are unapologetically a prophetic people. We believe that God speaks to us and through us, and, uh, but we also recognize that can be confusing. We come from a variety of backgrounds, church backgrounds and otherwise. And so this is a space for, if you've been a part of this church for a day, a week, a month, a year, or 30 years, uh, this is a place both to come and learn, but then to be activated. It's not just information, but activation. And you'll see a QR code on that card that you can square up your camera app, go to a website, read more about it, and sign up. And we would love to see you there. Well, I... Uh, I was preparing this week for this message on unity, and I came across an interaction, an exchange between a husband and a wife, and I want to read a part of that excerpt, said, a husband and wife often found themselves in conflict. Uh, one day, the man asked his wife, when we disagree, I lose my temper and start yelling, but you stay cool and calm. How do you do it? She said, I work it off by cleaning the toilet. He asked, how in the world does that help? She said, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> right? Different ways of dealing with conflict. If anybody's been in a marriage relationship, you know it can be difficult work, or really any relationship for that matter. Plenty of opportunities for conflict, plenty of different ways to, to work through that. Now, my wife and I have been married for 18 years as of last weekend, and uh, uh, thank you, thank you, yes, praise God. Uh, and last year, 2022, was probably our most, one of our most difficult years in marriage uh, in terms of just the sheer amount of conflict uh, that we were having. And, you know, I'm amazed at how much effort it takes. And we love Jesus, we're in community, but still so much work to um, be in unity together as a married couple. And again, not just marriage, but um, so many of us have experienced the, the breakdown that can happen in relationships. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I got an email from a longtime friend. She's been married for eight years, and she, the marriage is unraveling, and she fears that uh, it might not be salvageable. You know, coming out of COVID, uh, it's not uncommon now. About once a week, I feel like I see reports of incidents on airlines where people are unruly. Uh, road rage is up. And out, most of us have probably experienced family and workplace tension, uh, tensions. At the national level, there's been a shakeup in the House of Representatives. Of course, we could pan way out. And we've already talked about the devastation in Israel and Palestine. And we could keep going. Right now on this planet, there is civil war in Myanmar. 
There's Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, now in its 20th month. Uh, you have cartel violence in Mexico, military coups in Niger, uh, territorial disputes in the South China Sea, conflict with al-Shabaab in Somalia, power struggles between Sudan and South Sudan, and we could uh, keep going. And in the middle of this, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God, children of God, because that's who God is. But how? How do we become peacemakers? How do we advocate for unity amid that backdrop? What hope for there, uh, what hope for unity is there between Israel and Palestine, for example, if we, the people of God, can't be unified even in our own homes or in the body of Christ? I, I believe that God has a plan for unity that we find in the text. And he places us right at the center of that plan. And that's what I want to un unpack over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so this Sunday, next Sunday, Jimmy has been going through Ephesians 4. But he asked that I would um, kind of take Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and, and, and look at it in more depth together. If you were here a few weeks ago, Maddie and I talked about Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But we're going to go through all 16 verses over the next couple of weeks, uh, starting today in the first several verses. And I know we were just standing, uh, and you just sat down. But if you would stand with me for the reading of the text, we do this just as a symbolic act of respect for the Word of God. And you don't have to read aloud with me. It's a long passage, uh, but if you would uh, just follow along as I read our passage today. So this is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. <clears throat> Paul writing, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Some of you are reading with me, so let's just all read it together. Um, and we're in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint 
with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pat yourself on the back. Have a seat. Long passage. Way to go. Thank you. All right, so what I'd normally like to do is go through this passage verse by verse, just break it down as we go. Instead, I want to look at this passage like a blueprint addressing three key questions that emerge from the text, and the three questions will be on the screen. Number one, what is God's plan, plan for unity? Uh, number two, what does unity look like? What should our expectation actually be? And number three, is unity possible from the most granular level in, in the context of my relationships all the way up to um, uh, global uh, uh, scales? Now, next week, we're going to look at those second two questions. Uh, define, uh, sorry, what does unity actually look like, as well as some practical applications of how is it possible. Today, we're going to mainly dig into that first question, what is God's plan for unity? And we will primarily be in the first few verses of that passage today, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll tackle the rest next week. So instead of building up to it, I want to just kind of tip my hand right off the bat and uh, suggest that God's plan for unity is right there in verse 1, where Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what I would like to suggest is that God's plan for unity is simply that, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, notice he doesn't say to believe, though belief is assumed, but he is challenging us not just to believe, but to walk, to actually live out the calling to which we have been called. And that calling, that word, sometimes we think of like our vocation, our assignment, that I'm called to be a pastor or a businessman or to stay at home with kiddos or whatever our assignment might happen to be. But in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, that word calling most often means being called to a person, that Jesus called the disciples to himself, that we are called children of God. So you could, uh, in shorthand, rephrase this this way, that God's plan for unity is to live like Jesus. God's plan for unity is to walk, to live in a manner worthy of our calling to him, our rabbi, our master, our Lord, to live in his manner, to live like Jesus, right? So that's uh, probably somewhat anticlimactic, uh, this is Pat, you know, the, the Sunday school answer uh, that God's plan for unity is to live like Jesus. But I'm actually serious. I am convinced. I have deep conviction that this is the answer to the issues that uh, we just talked about, whether, again, at the level of roommates and family or all the way up to the level of geopolitics. Uh, and what I'd like to submit to you today is specifically the way of Jesus, the manner of our calling is the way of the lamb. Everybody say, the way of the lamb. The way of the lamb. And we're going to break this down starting in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not even going to make a joke about it this week. But we start there because in Genesis 1 and 2, you have this portrait of what the Hebrews call shalom, that creation is in this state of perfection, that everything is as it should be. It's glorious. Uh, there has yet to be the introduction of sin and the fall and the curse. And everything is perfectly unified. God is in union with mankind. Uh, mankind is unified among themselves, and the, uh, mankind is even in union with creation itself. 
you have a state of shalom. Adam and Eve, in this context, are fully provided for. They have everything that they need. They're secure in the love and the provision of God. In the midst of this, Genesis 2, 17, God says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first uh, boundary that's given, and it is a very clear boundary with a very clear consequence. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if you know the story in Genesis 3, they eat the fruit, and uh, Maddie and I unpacked this uh, a bit a few weeks ago, so I won't go in depth here, but immediately they experience shame, right? Their nakedness, which had previously been a good thing, is now a source of shame, and they are trying to hide themselves. They are stitching together fig leaves to cover their nakedness, and immediately they're blaming one another, and you only have to go one generation to see anger leading to murder and ongoing strife. And fast forward today, uh, you get uh, Israel and Palestine, marital conflict and everything in between, this seed of sin here in Genesis chapter 3. And I would argue from the text that sin is the problem. All the breakdowns, all the disunity that we see ultimately can be traced back to sin in the individual human heart. And we could sit and argue critical theory and intersectionalism and dominant discourses and class distinctions all day long. And I think there's some merit to that, uh, that there are socially wide ills that need to be addressed. But those phenomena, I believe, arise because all of us are sinners. (laughs) All of us have sin individually in the human heart. We are all contributing to the problem. We are all culpable. Maybe not a popular message today. <laughs> now, in addition to the advent of sin, uh, this event, the eating of the fruit, introduces an ancient tension between justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. And don't we still experience that tension today, right? The, the complexity of how should Israel respond, the justice that we internally into it, and yet the, the application of mercy and the complexity at, at national levels. Uh, but, you know, more personally, when I am wronged by somebody, I immediately feel this need for justice that they would get theirs. And yet, uh, when I point the finger inward, I desire mercy for myself. Don't we do that? Uh, justice is needed out there, but mercy is needed right here. And so what do we do with this tension? What does God do with this tension? So Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. And a question, would it have been just for God to kill them right then? Yeah. Why? Because he had said, this is the boundary. This is the consequence. And the day that you eat it, they had every tree to eat from. And yet they ate of the one tree that was off limits. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Looked at the language in that passage. That word die is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean a spiritual death. It means a physical death. Uh, Now, you can argue that they died in that day, a spiritual death for sure. And eventually there was physical death introduced into the earth. But in that day, they didn't die, did they? Now, as a parent, we are taught, at least in the books and the classes we've taken, to be uh, to follow through. That if we give a consequence, a boundary, and a consequence, that we are to follow through with that consequence. Otherwise, we're just threatening, right? And it's hollow. It's empty. 
yet here it doesn't seem like God follows through. So is God being unjust in extending mercy to Adam and Eve? Do you see the tension that's emerging here? So how does God deal with sin and yet still be merciful towards his creation? I think it's partially resolved in Genesis 3.21. Genesis 3.21 will come up on the screen. It said, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now remember, they have inadequately covered themselves. It's insufficient to cover their shame. So it says God made for them garments of skin and clothed them. Now God could have spoken into being garments of skin. And you have to use your um, kind of artistic license here a little bit, insert yourself into the text. Uh, but the text seems to indicate that in the same way God made Adam from the dust and made Eve from his side, that he is getting his hands dirty, so to speak, that here in Genesis 1, he's created these perfect, uh, this, this creation in a state of shalom, these good creatures. And here God takes one or several of them and makes from them garments of skin. Well, how do you do that? You slaughter those animals, right? Now, um, I apologize for the gratuitous nature of these following comments. It's not to be graphic alone, but to make the point. I grew up hunting with my dad. We would kill a deer. And for some of you, I know that's sensitive, and I apologize, but um, we would uh, kill the deer and harvest the meat. And so we would hang the deer up, and we would cape it. We would cut the skin off. And then we would quarter it and then process the meat. And it never ceased to amaze me how much blood came from one animal. Uh, it would, we would wear two pairs of gloves, one to protect our hands, another one uh, plastic all the way up to the shoulders to try to prevent uh, blood from staining our clothes. But inevitably, just every time, it, uh, it, it always happened that blood would just be all over our shoes and pants and shirt. And inevitably, there would be nicks and cuts in the gloves, and we would just be covered in blood. And so when I read this passage, that's the image I have of God getting down on his knees, so to speak, with a, a good animal that he has has just created, slitting its neck, and then caping it, slowly cutting the skin from its body, getting blood uh, all over him, getting his hands dirty, so to speak. So that why? Why would he do that? Well, what happens here, and this is what the, a theme that gets introduced here in Genesis chapter 3, is that God institutes this process of substitutionary sacrifice. He addresses the issue leading to shame by transferring the guilt from Adam and Eve to this animal. Something had to die. God said that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Instead of them dying, they receive mercy. The animal receives justice, right? Now, this should violate every innate sense of justice that we have, that an innocent being would die on behalf of a culpable individual. And that's why theologians refer to this as the scandal of grace and songwriters and authors throughout the ages. It's scandalous. But this becomes a theme all throughout the Old Testament. You have the animal there in Genesis 3.21. You have um, the ram caught in the thicket in Genesis 22 that becomes a, a, a substitute for Isaac. You have this whole system of sacrifices that emerges in Exodus and Leviticus and on throughout the Old Testament that culminates in some senses with Solomon's dedication of the temple and tens of thousands of animals being sacrificed for the nation of Israel. 
You have the Passover lamb of Exodus 12, which is probably one of the clearest examples of this substitutionary sacrifice. And then you even have this kind of prophetic foreshadowing uh, in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, the Messiah who would be one who suffers, a man of sorrows. And of course, with hindsight, we know this culminates in the coming of Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist sees him coming down to the Jordan in John chapter 1, verse 29. And John makes this proclamation, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, would it have been accurate for John to introduce him as, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Yes, I mean, it would have been accurate. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But here, John introduces him. He sees him through this lens of the Old Testament, he knows by the direction and the Spirit of God where this is going, because what happens to a lamb? Eventually, it's going to be slain. You know, normally we think of strength as power, right? And, and again, Jesus was strong. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He multiplied food. But even his application of strength was to serve uh, the marginalized and the broken and the outcast. But he was also a portrait of voluntary restraint on behalf of others. He was the king of kings, and yet he was homeless for several years as he demonstrated what his father's kingdom was like. He is the Lord of lords, and yet he's kneeling down, washing the feet of his disciples, taking on the garments of a servant. And as he hangs on the cross, naked and bleeding and totally humiliated, struggling to breathe, he becomes not just the Lamb of God, but the lamb that was slain. And that portrait comes full circle all the way back to Genesis 3, 21, this substitutionary sacrifice that the justice of God, and remember, Jesus is God. It's a self-sacrifice. He absorbs his own justice, if you will, in a way that we'll never fully comprehend or be able to tease out. But Jesus absorbs the justice of God that we might receive what? Mercy. And there, that ancient tension is satisfied. And what I would like to submit to you is outside of the cross, there is no resolution to the problem of sin in the world that leads to the breakdown in our relationships. That outside the cross, there is no resolution to that tension between justice and mercy, and we will bend towards vengeance almost every time. That if the cross is not at the center of the complexity of human relationships, then we will not uh, realize unity in our lifetimes. Now, as recipients of mercy, undeserved, unmerited, we now are empowered and exhorted to give it away, to be agents of mercy and reconciliation and unity. But before we go any further, what I'd like to do is to pause and for you to turn to somebody next to you just to keep this fresh, to mull this over. What is one thing that's standing out so far? What's your top takeaway? Turn to somebody, take about 60 seconds and share that with them and we'll pull back together. Ready, go.
Take about 15 more seconds. All right, so to kind of pivot back to our passage for today, Ephesians 4, uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 3, but going back to verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner, by the way, the therefore connects this passage to the previous three where he unpacks this scandal of grace at length. But he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of this calling, of the calling to which you have been called, this calling to the suffering servant, the lamb that was slain. Paul himself had once been in a position of great power. He was a dual citizen. He was both a Roman citizen and he was a Jew. He was trained under Gamaliel, one of the top Jewish teachers of that time. He was kind of a rising star in the world of Judaism. And after he met Jesus, he said, I count it all as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He calls himself a prisoner, both metaphorically and literally. Metaphorically, he is a prisoner of Jesus. He said, I have no rights. I've relinquished them all. Whatever you say goes. I will walk in your way by your grace. And he's become a physical prisoner. He's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus from a jail cell in Rome because he has laid down his life on behalf of both Jew and Gentile, that they might know this gospel, this scandal of grace. He has spent himself on behalf of others, power in restraint, following the way of the Lamb. And he's urging us, walk in the manner worthy of the calling. Now, what is that manner? He goes on in verses two and three to describe, to characterize, this is what this will look like. This is how kind of a rubric you can lay over your relationships, your motivations, your attitude to see, am I on track or have I strayed? Am I walking in the manner of the lamb? Verses two and three, he says, with all what? And with bearing with one another in eager to maintain the, in the spirit and the bond of peace, right? Humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, love, unity. This is the manner of Jesus. Now, uh, for most of these things, you don't need these when everything's going well, do we? Like, we don't need patience when everybody is treating us with honor and res- the honor and respect we deserve, right? We need patience when we're cut off on the road, when somebody posts something inflammatory online, uh, when your roommate leaves a pile of dishes in the sink, that is when we are exhorted to walk in the manner of the lamb with these attributes. The charge here from Paul is to walk the way of the cross, of self-sacrifice, to take up our cross and lay down our lives on behalf of others. Now, we're not talking today about how do we do this, right? Because this does not come naturally. We are naturally bent in on ourselves. Some of us might be personality-wise more meek than others, but um, the problem of sin is a problem. And next week, we'll go more into why. But I do want to point out here, or how rather, but I do want to point out here in verse 3 that Paul says, this is a unity of the what? Spirit, that we need the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in us in order to walk the way of Jesus. We'll talk about that next week, abiding in the Spirit, leaning on and depending on the Spirit. Uh, 
But again, uh, at face value, it sounds simple enough. The, problem to all, the solution to all the world's problems to live like Jesus. Uh, great. But why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? Again, going back to Adam and Eve, they were fully provided for. They were secure in God's love and provision until they weren't, right? Until the serpent comes along and whispers a lie, says, no, God's holding out on you. You aren't fully secure. There is something else that you need, and that is the ancient lie that is still whispered in our ears. You're not okay. You're not going to have enough this month, so you need to cut a corner, You need to dominate in the marketplace because, well, there's not enough pie to go around. It's a zero-sum game. One of my mentors growing up, who was not a believer, I was not a believer, uh, he had a saying. He said, the golden rule is he who has the gold rules, right? He said, and I quote, the meek do not inherit the earth. Those who assert themselves will inherit the earth. That is the ethic of the world around us. But it stems from insecurity. It stems from selfishness. It stems from jealousy and all the breakdown of sin in the human heart. Uh, We're not okay. We need to assert ourselves. There's not going to be enough to go around. You know, we were watching football yesterday. And and by the way, sick and bears. Um, But I was was kind of musing on this message, looking at uh, the different football teams. And I was thinking of mascots. And we so badly want to be the lion, don't we? We don't want to be the lamb. Like, there are no teams on planet Earth, correct me if I'm wrong, that are the lambs, right? We don't want to be the meek, the weak, the self-sacrificial. So we are the Baylor Bears. And I remember during Welcome Week, uh, we were taught by our Welcome Week leader. And when they were teaching us the sickum, this is the bear paw. And they said, when you sickum, you are eviscerating your opponent, Baylor Baptist University, you are tearing open the torso of your opponents so their entrails spill out on the field. That's what was communicated from the front. And so when all these good Baptists are doing the sickum next week, you will think of what's behind that. Uh, that but really, but we, you know, think a, a, across the spectrum of the mascots. It's the Waco High Lions. It's the Midway Panthers, and even uh, MCC. Anybody know? The Highlanders. And if you look up what the Highlander, the mascot, he's in his Scottish war gear, sword ready to take out the opponent and across the board. We don't want to be the lamb. (laughs) Why? Well, we want to be powerful. We want to be in control. And I know it's silly with mascots, but really, in our lives, we would rather be the lion than the lamb because we're not secure in the love and the provision of God. So what could this look like uh, in marriage? I already mentioned for us, it was a a difficult year last year. We had a lot of conflict. And in most of those, I was about 90 to 95% in the right. (laughs) For most of them. And uh, in my wife's mind, she was about 90 to 95% in the right. Right? But regardless of percentages, to live like a lamb, whether it's 1% or 99%, would be to take ownership of that percentage without expectation of reciprocation. Right? So it's at some point connecting with the Holy Spirit, trusting that I will be okay because God will make everything right in the end. He will meet out, says, leave room for the vengeance of God. Not that I wish vengeance on my wife, though at times I do. Um, <laughs> 
when I'm in the flesh. But in the spirit, uh, I'm convicted of sin in that moment. And in my responsibility is to take ownership of whatever is my responsibility to take ownership of. And there is always something to take ownership of. So to stop and, hey, please forgive me for raising my voice. That was wrong of me. And by the way, this is the hardest thing on the planet to do, uh, or at least for me. Um, please forgive me. And she might be like, yeah, you're right. You did, you know. And, and she's responsible before God. She doesn't do that, by the way. I married up. Um, she's far more gracious than I am. Um, and, uh, but that, that confession of sin uh, starts the healing process. Again, it's far more complicated than just one moment of confession. But please forgive me. That was wrong of me to say what I said, to the facial expression, the tone of voice, whatever it happened. Hear me, and we'll talk about this next week. There are, of course, appropriate times for confrontation, to speak the truth in love, to set appropriate boundaries. This doesn't just mean you get walked all over. Uh, however, um, you'll know when it's okay to confront someone when it's about their well-being and not yours. Uh, and we'll talk about that next week. I'll just leave that hanging. Uh, but I'm talking about just kind of the run-of-the-mill conflict where to be the lamb would be to be the peacemaker, to be the first to own up uh, whether or not the other person reciprocates. Or, you know, we have four boys, and, um, you know, yesterday we were at a, a client appreciation party, and um, there was a snow cone machine that, our snow cone uh, food truck that was unlimited snow cones. So my kids took full advantage. Uh, so we brought them home just fully sugared up as if they had had an IV and a slow drip all day long. And, and so our house last night was utter chaos. And so what does it look like as a dad to be the lion and not the lamb in that moment? Because I want to be the lion and the drill sergeant and bring order immediately, not for their sake, but for my peace, right? But to be the lamb, which I, maybe, I, you know, maybe I was a C plus last night, um, to be the lamb would be to center in for a moment on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you have five seconds to fill me with your fruit, uh, <laughs> before I sling these children out the open window. And, uh, and then, yes, bring order to chaos, but with gentleness, with respect, maybe firmness, uh, but to appropriate the manner of Jesus in my home. And the great, the great thing about God is that he is so patient with our process. And when we blow it, not if, when we blow it, we can turn around and confess that to our kids, confess that to our loved ones. Uh, and appropriate grace that way. And so uh, I did blow it last night. So this morning I got to, I wish it was sooner, but this morning I got to uh, uh, repent for the way I did not represent Jesus well in raising my voice uh, at them last night. Uh, talk about driving, right? I, I have battled road rage for most of my life. You may not think that. I might seem mild-mannered, but for those who know me are not surprised. Uh, and I, would, I could embarrass myself all day long with just, just stupid things I've done while driving. And so for years now, I've tried to practice blessing those who I feel have cursed me on the road um, and, and try to imagine the best, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. Surely somebody in the family just died. They're on their way to a funeral and they're not thinking about others on the road. Uh, and, but seriously, I will just speak a blessing over them. God, I don't know what's going on in their life. Just meet them today. Uh, fill them with your spirit. M reveal your love to that person. This sounds silly, but this is where the work is done, by the way. This is where the rubber meets the road. Our lives are the sum of these small moments. We could talk about school, right? In school, maybe it's seeing somebody who is 
um, a loner, an outcast, probably for a reason, maybe, you know, um, socially awkward or, what, or whatever. But at the expense of your own reputation, crossing that chasm and becoming a friend and being a lamb uh, as your other peers maybe tear you down for that action. Uh, maybe at work, it's someone else is being recognized. Someone else is successful. But because I'm secure in the love and the provision of God, I can celebrate that success instead of tearing them down in my heart and mind or speaking ill of them behind their back. Uh, I, can, I can celebrate their achievement and their promotion. Uh, I know this gets complex. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I am challenging us to at least evaluate uh, the ethic which, which, the, with which we live, the manner in which we are living in our day-to-day lives, not just when we're here raising our hands, singing these lyrics, but the rest of the 168 hours a week where we are out and about uh, rubbing shoulders with real people, with real problems and real challenges. Um, we could scale all the way up to business owners. You know, how do you apply the the lamb ethic as a business owner that's dog-eat-dog. It's a cutthroat world. I think of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, um, man, believer goes with believer to law, to to a court, to sue each other, and that before unbelievers. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Why not rather be wronged? I could think of several reasons personally, but in light of the justice of God and the mercy of God, why not rather be wronged so that the world can see the suffering servant, the answer through the cross. I have a friend who owns a business and had trained up somebody who became a manager and, and uh, they had signed a non-compete but then went out and started a, uh, a similar uh, service in the same area. And my friend wrestled with, you know, both believers, you know, what should I do? Got advice uh, of, of varied opinions from different believing business people. And I'm not saying that one decision would be more godly than another, but as he and his wife wrestled through this in prayer, they felt that they were just supposed to bless that new business and actually refer business to that competitor. And now both businesses are flourishing today. Not that there's not a time to make good on the non-compete, but just something to wrestle through, that we don't live one ethic in our Christian circles and another elsewhere. If I'm honest with you guys, my struggle is not looking out there at all the tragedy of the world. Jesus said in this world, we're going to have trouble. My struggle is when I look right here and see the inconsistencies of my own life. The ways that I claim, I'm a pastor, the ways that I claim to be a follower of Jesus, but then my life does not align with his way, with his manner. And by extension, as I look at the people of God, look at the church and see all the inconsistencies. Now, on the flip side, that's my great hope, too, is where the people of God are living as the people of God and walking in the way of Jesus. I believe it's a healing balm to a hurting and broken world. We so long to be the lion who is in control. And again, Jesus is a lion. He has power and strength. But he chose to manifest himself in his first coming as a lamb. He will come again to put every enemy under his feet. But as his followers, in this epic, we are called into the way of the Lamb. As we close, just want to read a passage out of Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that illustrates this contrast beautifully. John's having this vision. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, Father God, 
a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the scroll represents the, the, uh, the will of God being executed in the earth, in this context, judgment specifically. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one of all the billions of people are worthy to look into this scroll and execute the plan of God. And not even any of the angelic beings. And John, in this vision, he's overcome. He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But one of the elders steps forward, puts a hand on John's shoulder, some artistic license. He says, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And again, just uh, bear with me for a moment, applying some artistic license here. I grew up going to heavy metal concerts and liked heavy metal, and there was one band in particular. Anyway, I remember seeing this video of this particular band that I liked pre-Jesus, and uh, they were playing in the former Soviet Union right after the wall had come down, and so they went to Russia, and they did this concert, and there were probably 250,000 people in the field. I mean, it's this huge gathering, and people were waving the flags of the nations and regions that they came from. And when I actually saw this video again in college as I was starting to follow Jesus, I couldn't help but think of this throne room scene, which I'm sure most of you do when you uh, listen to heavy metal and connect it to Revelation chapter 5. And so in this video... Hundreds of thousands of people likely gathered. And there's this palpable anticipation before the band takes the stage. And eventually the drummer runs out and the crowd goes wild and he gets on the drum and starts the drum beat. And then a few moments later, the bassist runs out and the crowd's, you know, it's this frothing mass of humanity at this point. They're going crazy and the bassist gets on the bass and starts the drum, the, the bass line. And then there's a moment and then the lead singer runs out and he grabs the guitar and hits the power chord and it's everybody's just unhinged and flame erupts from the stage and there's fireworks and it's this insane scene. And that's what I picture happening here in Revelation chapter five, a long walk to get us to that point. But what I picture, this is the moment of revelation, right? Where Jesus is about to be unveiled as the one who is worthy to execute the judgment of God. And John is weeping because no one is found worthy. But all of a sudden, the drum and the bass line kicks in, and everybody's rib cage is rattling. And the elder steps forward. He's like, weep no more. Behold, right? And it kind of sweeps with a flourish. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And you expect Jesus to come ripping through the throne as a giant lion and roars and spews flame all over the place and everybody's ecstatic and it's this awesome scene of power. Are you with me? <laughs> but that, yeah, thank you, you're with me. But that's not what happens. Verse six, and I see like the camera angle, like they're just waiting for the lion and it's kind of this anticlimactic and then the, the camera zooms in in verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
even here at the end of time. And again, would it have been right for God, for Jesus, to show himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah, executing the justice of God in the earth? Of course it would have been, just as it would have been right for God to kill Adam and Eve. But even here, at the end of time, Jesus manifests himself as the most approachable creature on planet earth, a lamb. And not just the lamb of God, but the lamb that has been slain. This portrait of justice and mercy meeting in the person of Jesus. And Paul urges us as his followers to walk in this manner of your calling. If we have any hope of unity, it is that we not just believe this, but begin to flesh this out in our everyday relationships. You stand with me as we close our time, please. As our prayer teams come forward to be available uh, for prayer, I, uh, Kristen Schaefer, who's on our staff, she recounted a story uh, to uh, me and a couple of others this week. And her daughter is a student at a discipleship school similar to the ones that we have here uh, at Antioch. And her daughter called her a couple weeks ago after the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, really flamed up and she said they were in a prayer time, their discipleship school, about 400 people in the room. Um, and they were praying for this conflict, praying for Israel, praying for the Middle East, just as we did earlier. And she said in the middle of the prayer time, um, there were actually uh, a handful of Israelis among the students, uh, as well as one Palestinian. And, and as they were praying and worshiping, the Palestinian gentleman walks forward to the front and taps the worship leader on the shoulder, whispers in his ear, they exchange some words, and the worship leader steps out of the way and the Palestinian man steps up to the microphone and addresses his Israeli uh, co-students. And he says, I, uh, I just want to repent on behalf of the Palestinian people, on behalf of my people for the harm that they've caused your nation course, it was a sober moment, but one of those Israeli students walks forward and asks for the microphone and gets on the mic and says, we forgive you, and we would like to repent for the harm that our nation has caused your people. And Palestinian gentleman forgave um, that person. They embraced, and for a moment, heaven touched earth. Now, I'm not so simplistic to think that'll solve all the major complexity, but I am hopeful that the people of God appropriating with wisdom the mercy of the cross is our hope for moving forward in our marriages, in our schools, in our government, in the nations of the earth. So may we walk in the manner of the Lamb as we Respond, just two points of response. And you can start moving already if you know you want prayer. But first is confession. Um, I would invite you right there in your seat or up here with one of our friends or with a friend there just to confess ways that your life hasn't aligned with that ethic of humility and gentleness and so on for the ways that's harmed others. Confess it to God. Confess it maybe even practically to somebody that you're with. Might need to confess to the person that you've harmed. And the second response is forgiveness. To then turn around, whether the person is asking for forgiveness or not, to let the vengeance and the vindictiveness and the bitterness go. And that's an act of 
grace. You won't feel likely forgiving, uh, but by the grace of God to make a choice of forgiveness and to begin to extend in those circumstances. So those are our two very practical points as we respond with one last song of worship. I'd like to, again, pray for us. You begin to move, to confess, talk with a friend, whatever you need to do to respond as I pray. Father, we are overcome again. We don't understand your grace. We don't deserve it, but we receive it by faith. And Lord, we confess the ways that we have not aligned with your manner, your way. And I pray, Holy Spirit, all across the room, would you appropriate the grace that we need to walk forward in healing and wholeness and unity.